morning, friends. Um, to remind you, there are these membership directories on the table out there or under the table. Take one, stick it in your Bible like that, and in the morning when you get out to read the Bible, pray for five to ten faces from this church. And the next day, five to ten more. Use it in your prayer life. That would be a great use of this. So, so grab one on the way out. I remember sometime as a child, my father saying about my mother, she has the gift of discernment. And I remember thinking, I don't know what that means, but that sounds interesting. I remember when I was 15, discovering the book of Proverbs and reading through the book of Proverbs and seeing that wisdom and discernment are a really big deal, apparently. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. And I remember thinking, that sounds pretty important too. I don't know that I was a Christian at the time, but I remember praying and beginning to ask God, God, make me a person of wisdom, a person of discernment. What, what is discernment? Well, it's the ability to judge well. I got two paths in front of you, or maybe three or four paths, and I need the capacity to judge which of these is the best path forward. That is discernment. And why do we want discernment? We want discernment because it tells us the best way, the most excellent way amidst the different paths before us. Paul prays in Philippians 1, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. He wants them to love, but he wants them to love with knowledge and discernment so that they would love and approve what is best, right? And I want that. I trust you want that. I don't want to love frivolously or foolishly. I want to love what is best. I want discernment. I pray for me. I pray for you that we would have such discernment. Now, when people talk about spiritual discernment, often they mean they're talking about judging what's God's will for our lives. What is, what is God's will for my life. Does God want me to go to this college or that college to marry this person or that person? Take this particular job offer or not? What, what is God's will for my life? People commonly ask that question. You can read countless books on the topic, go to conferences on the topic, attend workshops on the topic. I remember hearing from one friend, he was whether, wondering whether or not he should go on a certain missions trip, and he woke up one morning and looked at the clock, and it said 747, and he thought, God wants me to get on this plane and go. Is that really how we're to exercise spiritual discernment, a random look at the clock? People, I think, Christians often worry that God has a specific pathway for our life 
I got to marry this person. I got to take that job, go to that college. And if I miss it, well, then I'm missing out on God's best, God's will for my life. Don't want to do that. It's almost as if God's up there and he's, he's looking at the cards and we're trying to figure out what's on his cards. But he's kind of hiding. Maybe he's dropping little clues. And if we could just discern the, the right clue, like that clock that says 747, well, okay, well, then we're good. But if, but if we can't discern what he sees on his cards, then we're in trouble. We're going to have second best, third best, something like that. Friends, that is not how the Bible talks about discernment. Yes, sometimes we do see the Lord leading people in very specific, particular directions. You think about Paul going one direction on his second missionary journey and then having a vision of the Macedonian man saying, come, come to us. God can do that. He sometimes does do that. Certainly, we should seek wisdom from the Lord anytime we're having to make a decision. Lord, give me wisdom in this decision and then, and then trust that he supplies the wisdom that we ask for. Still, seeking to discern that one particular pathway is not actually how the Bible typically encourages us to discern God's will. Rather, Scripture teaches that we are free agents called to think and make decisions and study the Bible so that whatever decisions we make will be in accord with his principles of love and righteousness. Think of 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Or Philippians 1 again, the prayer I just prayed, let me just add another phrase. And it is my, whip, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be approved what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, whether you choose this college or that college, choose to marry this person or that person, take that job offer or not, you're seeking to do so with all wisdom and truth and love and purity and blamelessness. So whether you go this way or that way, you are in accordance with God's will, a life of righteousness and a life of imaging Christ and being conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, I've just introduced you to the larger umbrella conversation about discernment and spiritual discernment. Today's text from John, 1 John chapter 4, go ahead and turn there, steps in under that umbrella and looks at one particular area of life and exercising spiritual discernment, and that's the particular area of what do we believe and how do we know what to believe. How do we exercise discernment? I, I got all of these messages in front of me. How do I know which is the right path? How do I exercise discernment in terms of what to believe? And particularly, as different voices are coming up inside of Christian circles and calling themselves Christian. Oh, Lord, give me discernment. Some of these things sound really good. They make a lot of sense. They match with my experience. Uh, a lot of my friends are saying, let's go this way. 
oh, Lord, give me discernment. John, as we've recalled from previous weeks, is cleaning up the mess of a number of church members who have left and teachers who have left because they're teaching different things. And now you have the group remaining, and in today's text, John is saying, okay, this is how we exercise discernment. Look there, chapter 4, verse 1. I'll read the first six verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, if you look in your bulletin on page 8, I've offered five steps for exercising spiritual discernment, particularly in this area of knowing what do we believe. Number one, exercise unbelief. Now, this might sound strange in a Christian church. After all, we spend so much time talking about what we should believe. But look at verse 1 again. Do not believe every spirit. Why must we not believe? Well, look at the end of verse 1. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Apostle John does not want us to be gullible. Christians should not be credulous. Kids, the word credulous means having a tendency to easily believe something. Christians should not be credulous. Instead, we need to know how to exercise the powers of skepticism. When somebody is teaching us something that sounds a little new, John, the Apostle John, wants us to be able to stop, think, and say, I know what you're saying right now sounds really compelling. It, it makes sense from a certain perspective. It's not true because I know a lot of false prophets have gone out into the world and that sounds like something false. He wants us to be able to say, I trust you mean well. I trust you're a really nice person. You have a really compelling story. It makes my heart sympathize with what you're saying. And man, when you say it, I'm just, ugh, I want to believe it. But no not true. Insofar as what we're talking about, what's true and what to believe and what not to believe, this text is a kind of philosophical text, a slightly intellectual text. So let, let, let's chase that rabbit for just a second. 
when John tells us to exercise certain activities of skepticism, it does remind us of, of what's been characteristic of the West since the beginning of what's called the Enlightenment. Go back to Descartes. And, and Descartes came along and said, how do we know what's true? And he said, I'm going to start by not believing anything, and I'm only going to believe those things that I can prove through reason. And other philosophers came along and said, we're only going to believe what we can prove through empirical evidence. And out of that comes the method of scientific inquiry. I'm not going to believe things until we make a hypothesis and test it. And once something is proven over time and repeated tests, then we'll believe it. Well, Christianity can be very sympathetic with that. There is a place for that sort of thinking inside of Christianity. That's why you get early theologians like Jonathan Edwards engaging with and learning from Enlightenment philosophers like John Locke. And that's why Christians can be some of the best scientists, right? In other words, Christianity is not superstition. Christianity, when the whole village says, you know, there's fairies and trolls in the woods, the stars guide our lives. If we just offer these sacrifices to the gods, we'll have military victory. And Christianity says, hold on, wait a second, not be so gullible. Let's ask some questions. Let's go through a process of discovery and understanding. Now, I could almost go on to my next point in the outline. I'm, I'm going to take a tangent here, okay? And I'm going to point out some things that aren't explicitly in our text, but I'm taking from other parts of the Bible. In the course of Western history, and enlightenment philosophy and the work of science, they would eventually discover we can't prove basically, finally, anything because so much of what we believe is driven by the human quest for power, which brings us to our own postmodern, post-enlightenment day. And Christianity, of course, knew this all along. Nine times out of ten, Human beings believe what they believe, not because we are rationally convinced of it. Sure, there's, there's a face on the screen, as in the Wizard of Oz, telling us we've reasoned our way to these decisions, but in fact, behind the curtain, behind the screen, are the real actors in telling us why we believe what we believe. Number one, our desires. And number two, our specific among those desires, our desire to fit into whatever room we happen to be standing at in the moment. Maybe you get older and you begin to discover, well, I have a certain desire for comfort or money or for sex, and little by little you adjust your desires, you adjust your beliefs to accommodate those desires. Or, or, or maybe you go off to a college and you find that everybody around you is very liberal in their understanding of the Bible or progressive in their understanding of the matters of faith or agnostic. And little by little, you begin to think the same things or maybe you show up in an office where everybody's conservative and you start to think conservative things because everyone around you thinks those things. Friends, 
Why does half the country believe masks are a sign of loving your neighbor as the self and half the country thinks masks are a tool of government tyranny? Well, pay attention to the rooms people are standing in. What news channels are playing? What do all of their friends say, the people they respect say? Teenagers, let me talk to you right now. Right now, the world around you, your parents, your parents' friends, maybe aunts and uncles, all say that Christianity is true. And it feels safe for you, teenagers, right now to believe that Christianity is true. But at some point soon, you're going to find yourself in rooms in which the people around you are saying very different things, and you're going to discover it's actually not safe to believe what Christianity teaches. You're also going to find new desires in you, increasingly, that war against Christianity. And you're going to want to fit in. And you're going to want to pursue those desires. Let me be clear, that desire to fit in, be inside the ring, to be inside the circle, to be inside of what people approve of is very strong. That's how cultures form. Now, in your mind, you're going to want to process all of these in kind of a rational way. You're, you're going to be tempted to say things like, well, well, Dad, is it really fair that people can't all love whoever they want to love? You're going to want to have that rational conversation. That's the image you're going to see on the screen. But behind the screen, the real action is going to be occurring in your heart. What does your heart most fundamentally want? The desires of the flesh or the desires of the Spirit? The approval of man or the approval of God? If you most fundamentally want the approval of other people and you most fundamentally want the desires of the flesh, you will change your religion. I promise, even if you continue to call it Christianity. So, kids and teenagers, you, you know those shows with, like, like there's an obstacle course and you start with 100 people and eventually by the end of the show there's, there's only 10 people left on that course or that journey, whatever it is. Well, if, if you look around the room and you look at your parents and you look at the other church members in the room, the ones that you see in the room right now are the 10 that are left. Because many of them grew up in Christian homes and went to Christian ministries and went to youth group or Christian schools and maybe many of their friends were Christians, but at some point they looked at their other Christian friends or kids who grew up in those families and they began to fall away. They began to desire other things, believe other things, listen to the voices of the rooms they were standing in. And your parents, your Christian aunts and uncles and grandparents, looked at the Bible and said, no, I'm going to keep believing this. They're the ones who are left. One day, kids, teenagers, college students, you're going to have that same decision to make. And John is telling you not to believe every spirit. Now, why, why does he say every spirit? 
Well, notice that he refers to these spirits as prophets at the end of the verse. So he's clearly referring to humans who are teaching, but then he uses the word spirits to indicate the fact that there are more spiritual forces at work than simply the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. There's the spirit of Antichrist. And look at verse 6, the spirit of air. Okay, so these false teachers have gone out into the world... But finally, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, demonic forces, which know how to appeal to our desires and give us that sense of fitting in, are at work behind all of that false teaching. And notice John is not simply concerned with the false things which come directly from the world, but as he says, the false things that begin in the church, as it were, and go out into the world. Much false teaching emerges from Christianity or inside of churches, those, those who once believed the right doctrines of Christianity and come in the name of Christianity. What, what do you think of the Jesus Seminar from the 70s and 80s, which cast doubt on the ability to believe Jesus is who he says he is? What, what do we think of Theonomy, what do we think of egalitarianism? What do, you, what do you think of the new perspective on Paul? What do you think of the emergent church? What do you think of the eternal subordination of the Son? What do you think of revoice? Well, all of these, whether you know those words and those names or not, are, are doctrinal deviations, some more significant, some less significant, from what the Bible teaches, even as we've been talking about in recent weeks, LGBT affirmation, not that sexual immorality is new, but the way the conversation occurs in our culture, in the name of love, is a kind of Christian heresy. It's taken something from the Bible, love that we use for moral justification, and changes it just enough to go in a dramatically different direction. Brothers and sisters, I want you to learn how to exercise the powers of skepticism. Of how to say, yeah, that's not true. Not going to believe that. Because notice John isn't talking to the experts. He's not talking to the theologians. He's not showing up at the evangelical theological society. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to church members. And he's saying, you guys. You're the ones who should not believe every spirit. Point two, much shorter. Test what people teach. Test what people teach. Look at verse one again in our passage. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test. Test the spirits to see whether or they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test. What, what, what does it mean to test? Well, it means to examine something to see if it's genuine, to, to stare at, hold up in the light and look at it from different angles. Does this hold up? Is this finally credible? A teacher tests the students and goes around and makes sure they, they understand what, what the teacher has been teaching in the classroom, right? Uh, a scientist in a, in a laboratory tests the formula to see if it really works. Engineers in an auto plant test the new safety devices to see if they really keep the crash test dummies safe. 
And what does the apostle call you, if you are a Christian and a member of a church, to do? Well, he calls you, church members, to be the scientist, to be the plant engineer doing those tests. He calls you not to be lazy, complacent. He calls you not just to rely on your instinct and what feels right. You know, I'm sure these new mechanisms will work. We don't need to test it. The guys who came up with the new auto safety designs, they're nice guys. That'd be a terrible idea. Well, and so it is with you, brother or sister in Christ. You are to test the spirits, test what the folks are teaching. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So guard your hearts. This proverb says that your desires are right, but also engage your brains. John wants Christians to think critically, to think carefully, to not, as I said before, be credulous, superstitious, be gullible. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is you cannot finally rely on your elders and pastors. Now, God has given you pastors or elders to teach the Bible, to teach right doctrine. Uh, uh, Paul even says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus has given your pastors and your elders as gifts. I remind my wife all the time what a gift I am. But what are they doing? They're teaching you the Bible because the Bible is the standard. They aren't the standard. The Bible's the standard. You got to know the Bible. And that's why week after week, John gets up here, he's like, okay, here's Genesis 1, this is what Genesis 1 says, and here's Genesis 2, what Genesis 2 says, and Genesis 3. That's why I'm going through John right now, verse by verse, even word by word. What does it mean to test? Or crash test dummies. I, we're paying close attention. I'm trying to get that in you. And you want that in you so that you can do this kind of test. It's not the wisdom and convictions and doctrine, much less the vision and the dreams the pastors, you ultimately want it's the wisdom and convictions and doctrine of the Bible. By the Bereans, we're told, study God's word to see if what Paul, the apostle, said is true. So we labor the, to get this inside of you, and, and you're responsible to get it inside of you. Don't go to any church that doesn't do this. Don't go to any church that asks you to rely on the charisma, authority, and the power, and the humor of the pastor. Tries to build itself on a certain feeling, a certain mood, a certain hipness, a certain relevance, a set of programs, a certain national identity or ethnic identity. I'm not saying those other things are bad. I'm saying, what do you want to build on? Well, if you're going to do the testing work you're called to do, how to build on the Bible. Yeah, John tells us to do the more than just test. He gives us the criteria by which to test, which brings us to point three. Number three, listen for these two different confessions. Look at verse two again. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
Last week I talked to you about two different ways to live and to love. The week before that we talked about all of humanity being divided into two groups, the children of God and the children of the devil. This week we see two different teachings, two different basic confessions for Jesus, against Jesus, Christ anti-Christ. Jesus is God, Jesus is not God. Right? At the heart of Christianity is the affirmation that Jesus, a man who walked around ancient Judea, who was born to a woman through all the agonies of childbirth, who grew up and experienced all the realities of bodily life like scraping a knee and haircuts and hormonal changes who experienced hunger pains and a runny nose and body odor and heavy eyelids late at night when the fringes kind of keep talking on and on, who experienced the pain of being punched. That man was God himself. Holy man Fully, God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. One of my daughters recently said to me, and I have permission to share this, that she struggles with feeling, her word, confined. She says there's so much she wants to go out and do, so much of the world she wants to travel and see, and perhaps interestingly, most acutely, she feels the pangs of frustration at the futility of life. I work so hard at something and it doesn't work out. It breaks or doesn't come to fruition. She feels confined. Now think of Jesus and his confinement. Son of God, whose arm breadth could reach beyond the stars, who had legions of angels at his beck and call, who could name the exact speed of every electron constituting the entire planet of Jupiter, could say it all, it was moving this fast, that Son of God enters into a womb and then becomes an infant and becomes an adolescent then an ancient Near Eastern man's body. He confined himself to hair and corpuscles and a spleen. In high school, in college, I had long hair down to here or back. Remember junior year of college in the shower. What are all these long hairs around my fingers? Well, fast forward 10 years, you know how that worked out. What about you? 
what, what's something bodily that you struggle with? Some, some feature that you don't like? Maybe a disease? A chronic condition? Maybe aging? Whatever it is you look in the mirror and you don't like. Jesus confined himself to that, to life in the flesh, to the unflattering, to the decaying, to the broken down, to the peeking out early and not getting better the rest of the way. He was seated in God's throne room. He upholds the universe by the words of his power. Comes in the flesh. Our verse tells us, confines himself to that. In other words, members of Chevrolet Baptist Church, when you are sitting on a plane and somebody asks you what you believe or you're in the office and you have that opportunity, you can say, listen, I actually believe something that sounds a little crazy. I believe God became, in the person of his son, man. Lived the perfect life you and I should live, showing us what a true humanity should look like, and then went to the cross, submitting himself even further to death and death on a cross, taking the, the punishment that we deserve, that you and I deserve for our sin, taking that punishment on himself, rising again from the grave, de defeating the power of, of flesh, defeating the power of death and sin, so that all who repent and believe and follow after him can have a new body, new life, eternally. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? Well, very briefly, at least four reasons. Number one, to demonstrate, as I said, what true humanity should look like, to, to experience our trials and our woes and our curses from balding to friends dying to everything else, and yet demonstrate what a perfect, sinless, spirit-filled human being would do. Two, to redoing redemptive history. To do what Adam and Abraham, Israel and David should have done. And thereby win all the promises of God for his people. Number three, to die a death on the cross is this spotless lamb of God, paying the penalty for our sins and rising again, as I said. And number four, to become a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every way has been tempted, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We, we, we could spend all morning dwelling on those four reasons why Jesus became incarnate, right? But verse 2 again, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The flip side of that, of course, verse 3, every spirit that has not confessed Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. It's funny, Christians will sometimes refer back to the early church, the church in the 2nd and the 3rd and the 4th century, and they'll say, well, what did they believe as if what they believed or what they practiced was somehow better because it was closer 
to the time of Christ when what we have here, what we have throughout the New Testament and here, is those heirs crept in right away. It has gone out into the world now and already, says John in this text. How often is Paul warning people to watch out for false teachers? Error and heresy and apostasy will show up as quickly as the truth is pronounced. Truth pronounced and within minutes, deviations from that truth will follow. Uh, Yes, the Son of God came in the appearance of the flesh, said some of the early heretics. Or, or he was in the flesh, but he actually wasn't actually God. He was kind of the firstborn of God, greatest creation of God. Half-truths, which of course are finally untruths, proliferate. And such half-truths have continued to proliferate and abound for 2,000 years. And it's not just distortions to the doctrine of the Incarnation. There have been distortions to the doctrine of the Trinity. He's one God who kind of wears three different hats. Sometimes he shows up this way, sometimes he shows up that way. Uh, Different distortions to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. He's not really sovereign. Distortions to the doctrine of man. We're we're not born sinful. We become sinful. Or we're perfectible. Distortions to the work of Christ. He he didn't die as a a substitute per se, but as a, a loving, wonderful moral example for us. And on and on we could go through different distortions, different errors, some more serious as I said, some less serious, some in which salvation is itself at stake, and some which, well, maybe salvation is not at stake, but obedience and faithfulness is at stake. And kind of the longevity, what's going to protect the salvation, protect the gospel, those things are at stake. Different views of the church, different views of manhood and Womanhood, for instance. Yet with each and every heir, how to exercise discernment between right and wrong? How do we do it? Well, we look to the Bible and we look to what it says. We test doctrines according to the Bible. That's what John is telling his readers right here. What you have heard from us, what you have heard from the beginning. He's talking about the apostolic witness that's been written down for us in the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Chapter 2, verse 24, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. What's here in the scripture, what we receive by apostolic witness, by the apostle John and Peter and Paul, witness. Let this abide in you. If you would have doctrines, you need a standard. And that standard is the Word of God, and that standard is the doctrinal confession that the Son of God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, put on flesh, became incarnate, so that being fully God, fully man, He could live perfect life, die a substitutionary death on the cross, rise again from the grave, paying the penalty for all those who repent and believe of their sins and follow after him. If you're visiting this morning and you do not understand yourself to be a Christian, that's the heart of what we believe. 
That's what I want you to get your head on, that, that confession which I just gave. And if you're a church member, that confession has got to be at the center of the spider web that eventually gets out and touches all the other parts. We have to hold on to week after week. God has spoken these things to us. Hold them fast. A fourth step in exercising spiritual discernment concerning what we believe. Number four, remember where you're from. Verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in verse six, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And the end of the verse there, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We've, we've, we've been talking about this for several weeks. Humanity is divided into two groups, children of God, children of the devil. John brings all of that back right here. Little children, you are from God. They've been born of God, children of God. Part of exercising discernment about what to believe is knowing who your daddy is, according to this text. What your family is, what you represent who you live for. Not only that, it means overcoming the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means having not yet been overcome by the false teaching. Those who were in the church and were overcome by false teaching went out. You guys are still here. You have not been overcome, right? How do they do that? Well, by the Spirit who is in them, by the Holy Spirit who keeps true belief beating in their hearts. The Holy Spirit who is greater than the Spirit of the world keeps that beating. I don't understand how people have gone out. But why is it we started with 100 and we have, we have 10 left at the end of this obstacle course? Why have some fallen away? Well, the Holy Spirit squeezing that heart, keeping it beating. I, I, I do believe this. I, I am willing to live for this and follow this and, and submit my entire life to this. He's, he's overcome the world and he's held on to me. And so we look around the room and we see the, the 10 remaining. Though we may have begun with a larger group. John, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's two competing spirits, the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Christ, praise the Lord, is stronger than them. We don't finally need to fear that we will be overcome because the one in us has overcome. Now, the competing point comes across next, point five. Recognize where they're from. Verse five, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. In the second part of verse six, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We exercise spiritual discernment by remembering and recognizing where people are from and where they are getting their message from. Have you ever been at a college game or a professional game and you've looked over and you saw a bunch of fans acting like complete hooligans and then you realize, oh, they're, they're from that team. They're from Green Bay. If you don't know it, Green Bay Packer fans can be a little zealous. They're acting like where they're from. So it is with us as we're 
listening to people claim to speak truth or tell us how to think, you will exercise discernment by asking yourself, are they from God or are they from the world? And friends, the bifurcation, the split really is that radical. That doesn't sound tolerant or inclusive, but it really is. There really are two ways to live and to love. There really are two groups, children of God, children of the devil. There really are two confessions. It's one or the other. And so you're asking the question, okay, what, what, what team are they rooting for? And I'm listening and I'm watching and I'm asking the question, where are they from? Who's their daddy? Who do they represent? Kids, praise God, you, many of you have a Christian daddy or a Christian mommy. But finally, the New Testament doesn't give you, though it gives you Christian parents to encourage you and nurture you and point you towards the truth. Finally, kids, you don't get any points with God because of who your earthly daddy or mommy are. Finally, you get to make the choice. Who will you follow? Will you be a child of God or a child of the world and of the evil one? And you'll need to make that choice. You'll need to repent and believe yourself. And there's nothing more than all of us parents obviously want for you. That's over to you. There's no credit because of who your mom and dad are. Who is your daddy? Is it the heavenly father? Or is it someone else? How do we exercise spiritual discernment? How do we make sure we judge the right path about what to believe and what not to believe? Well, we start by exercising a little skepticism. We don't believe everything. Next, we test it. Test it according to Scripture and the doctrines of Scripture, particularly the doctrine that the gospel of the Son of God coming in the flesh and dying on the cross for sins. And finally, we're paying attention to where people are from and where their claims are coming from. Are they listening to the Bible and its apostolic witness, indicating they are from God, or are they rejecting that and relying on their own wisdom, indicating they are not from God? Friends, we need to take these steps and we will much more likely discern the right path from the wrong path. In all of life, how we live, what we choose, and certainly from today's text, what we believe, we don't want to be the church that sits there and prays and says, God, show us the right way. What, what do we do? How do we live? What do we believe? And the whole time the Bible's kind of sitting there on the chair, closed. We don't want to be that church. We don't want to be those people. Praise God for his book. Praise God for his spirit, which keeps these truths alive and believed and rightly weighted in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we give you praise that you have spoken and you have acted through the person of your son and through the witnesses you raised up in the apostles to teach us about him. Help us to believe by your Spirit. Give us discernment between right teaching and wrong teaching. We pray all of this in 
the Son's name. Amen.